Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me, as always, is my co-host and month of June flower, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing? I'm perfect. We have a guest star. We do have a guest star. Our guest star is Kira Obolensky, whose plays have been produced off-Broadway in Los Angeles, in Prague, in Terezin, and in such locations as homeless shelters, prisons, tribal colleges, chemical dependency centers, and immigrant centers. Uh, she's received awards and fellowships for her work, including the Kesselring Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and most recently, a Mellon Foundation National Playwright Fellowship, which put her in residence with the award-winning theater 10,000 Things. Her novella, The Anarchists Float to St. Louis, uh, won Quarterly West's Novella Prize, and her short stories have recently appeared in the Brooklyn Review. Uh, she attended Juilliard's playwriting program, Williams College, and is a core writer at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. And she teaches at Spalding University's low-residency writing program, as well as at the University of Minnesota. Hello, Kira. Hello. How fun to be with you today. Oh, I'm so excited that you're yeah. here. One of Walt Disney's first shorts was a part of a cartoon series called Newman Laughograms. And this is before he had his own studio. And Newman didn't make it, obviously. It went bankrupt. Uh, but Disney took those uh, films to Los Angeles and ended up getting a distribution agreement in 1924. And the movies are known uh, by the shorthand of the Alice comedies. Uh, they're 57 in all. They're a live action. It's a live action girl interfacing with a cartoon world based on the source material by Lewis Carroll. And then in 1932, Walt wanted to turn Alice into a feature length film, but he tossed the idea for Snow White instead. Um, however, in 1936, the Disney Studios created um, a, car a Mickey Mouse cartoon called Through the Mirror. So the content was clearly still on their radar. And that's one of my favorite Mickey Mouse cartoons, as it well is as, as one, one of my younger son's favorite ones. We've watched that one a bunch. It's delightful. It really is. Um, if you recognize the voice of Alice in this 1951 version, it is none other than the Disney legend Catherine Beaumont, who voices Wendy and Peter Pan. And that's a film that will come out two years later. We've already done Peter Pan, but I just thought I'd throw that in there for our listeners. And um, I know that Kira had some uh, thoughts that she wanted to share about, you know, the making of this film as well. Well, I, for me, I, I found it interesting that it it the, it takes a long time for this film to be made, and it it, it starts right. kind of post war, and. Um, there are a couple of artists who are Disney artists who are working on it that you, you'll you'll know their names. Mary Blair, who was a, a famous stylist who uh, who who did did sort of amazing background and color, um, and then another another animator stylist named John Hench. And when they started on it, um, Disney was at the same time. Uh, had invited the famous surrealist artist Salvador Dali to the Disney studios with the idea that Dali was going to make a film, a short film that was going to be, I think the quote is better than Fantasia. And that film in itself has a, it was animated and has a very interesting history. Um, so Dali arrives and who takes care of him? 
but John Hench and Mary Blair. It's the the people who are working on the stylings for Alice in Wonderland. Of course, Alice in Wonderland is in itself such a surreal masterpiece. So I, the juxtaposition of, of those two uh, creative teams, I think, is really interesting. Um, I, I, you know, I keep wanting uh, melting clocks to show up in Alice in Wonderland, but you know, they don't, but they show up in the gift shop, which I think is interesting. Yes. There's amazing, there's amazing stuff in the gift shop. Yes. Okay. So let's start talking about, um, the, the story here. And so Kira and audience at home, uh, every time we talk about a movie, we start with um, the Manish Tana. Manish Tana is the opening of the four questions, uh, which, uh, as a Jewish person, we say at Passover. And we begin by asking, why is this night different from all other nights? And when we apply this to a movie, the question that we're asking is, why does our movie start where it starts? Sometimes this is related to the inciting incident. Um not always, but sometimes. Uh, but very often we consider this point of attack. There is a reason why uh, we, we're not watching Alice several hours ago prior to her lesson uh, with her sister. Uh, and there's a reason why we're not doing it after she's woken up from her dream. Uh, but why do we start where we start? And I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out to you, to, to Andy and Kira. Why do you think we begin uh, in the field outside of Wonderland. So I have an idea about this. Um, Alice is longing for Wonderland, right? She, she's she's listening to a history. She doesn't want to listen to a history lesson, which I love history, and that history lesson's pretty dull. Um, so I think they made it as dull as they possibly could. So instead, she makes a j- daisy chain for her cat. Um, she wants a place where books have pictures. And in you know, a childish way, but in you know, an understandable way, because it is really boring. Um, she has this tantrum almost where she decides, well, in my world, everything would be nonsense, right? And sort of mid tantrum, she falls asleep and she starts dreaming that nonsense. Okay. So that's my thought on that. I think that, yeah, I think that, that there's, that's such an interesting question because that song is a kind of portal. It's, it's somehow the state, it's the first statement in which she's, expressing a desire and in this in this movie which is all about identity you know it becomes a kind of um gateway uh for her imagination i um i also like to think of it as as a confluence of things she's she's we first see her sort of poised on you know she's poised she's on the cusp um i think in the real book she's seven you know Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe she's seven in, in, in the movie. She, she, I'm not quite clear on how old she is, but she's at an age in which she is ready for the next thing. And she doesn't quite her, look at the way her sister is rendered all sort of bundled up, like a, almost like a, a nun. And I think that Alice is trying, is thinking here I am poised up above this. Is this what awaits me? this world without pictures so that there's a really a kind of philosophical question at work uh, in terms of why the movie starts where it starts. It starts because the day is beautiful and Alice is bored and um, she's longing for other things. And her sister is so boring and you know, all of those things, but you know, technically what happens is she falls asleep and the rabbit appears, you know, that that's the, I think the trigger. 
No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and I, I would actually liken it to Pinocchio a little bit. Yeah. The reason why Pinocchio begins where Pinocchio begins is it's the day where Geppetto prays for a son the hardest, the most that he's ever prayed for one. And I believe that this is the day that Alice has prayed for nonsense the most, which is an interesting prayer. Uh, but but this she's wishing it and she's bringing it into fulfillment. Um, so, so I enjoy that. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the plot elements a little bit. And, oh boy, uh, you know, I say this a lot about Disney movies. Disney movies are often uh, episodic. Um, and this one is certainly no exception. If we want to talk about exposition, I would like to point out there's almost none in this movie. Uh, we see Alice, we see her sister, we see them in the field. We see Alice getting a lesson from her sister. And that's all we really know about Alice's world, the real world, uh, uh, outside of Wonderland. Uh, we don't know too much about Alice's home life, her family life, her relationship with her parents, her friends, what she does in her spare time. Um, I, I, I think there's almost no time spent on exposition here, which is an interesting choice. Uh, the movie that I always want to compare Alice in Wonderland to is The Wizard of Oz, I think, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. Sure. Where I would say if you look at the 1939 movie, uh, 1939? Let, let's mm -hmm. go with that number. Um, you know, when we go with that movie, there's almost too much exposition in Kansas, and I can't wait to get to Oz. Here, we're in Wonderland almost immediately. Uh, I, I, that's, I, I agree. And, I mean, we fall into Wonderland so quickly these aren't expository elements, but like the Wizard of Oz, there are echoes or rhyming mm -hmm. rhyming patterns so that, you know, Dinah the cat kind of appears, uh, you know, in the form of the Cheshire cat. The, the idea of um, what you're supposed to do is posited kind of again and again and twisted throughout the movie. And that's represented in that very quick opening scene with the sister. You're supposed to read this. This is interesting. This is, this is, you know, what, how, how adults learn. Um, so, you know, even the flowers come back again. So like wizard right. Oz in, in which you, you see characters manifest in different forms. Alice does a, this, the movie does a little of that too. The field the flowers, the, you know, the trees, the, um, these are the elements we see kind of uh, echoed throughout. And she's kind of in an idyllic setting. I mean, she's in a tree. She's, I mean, when I think about relaxation, I think, oh, that's, that's a good start. Like that place. It's a perfect um, day. But, in the, yeah, it's a perfect day. I know. And There's Alice so has had it. She is done with it. And she, and she has to listen to this boring history lesson from her sister. <laughs> It's boring too. Oh, it is dull. It's yeah. dull. And, and that's a great, that's a a great thing to open your movie with. I know. And right? she and she wow. says sort of unironically, you know, my world would be a wonderland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if, if you know, around you, like here you are, I mean, you're you're lying in a bed of daisies for crying mm -hmm. out loud. Like, you're seven. Oh, Everybody like, does everything for you, so that's right. right. <laughs> I, I'm in. I want that. Yeah. I'm good. So, so, and I don't think that this is a difficult question, what I'm about to ask here, but what would you guys say is the inciting incident, the event that occurs that sets us off on our actual movie and story? 
Well, we don't see it happen. I'm I'm sure it's the dream, but I mean, in terms of what's happening on the screen, it's the rabbit. Right. You know, a white rabbit appears and Alice for reasons only known to Alice chases after the white rabbit and enters into Wonderland. She um, just really feels compelled to follow him, doesn't she? Yeah. And and it's no it's like she says well there might be a party. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm in. He's late. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting about this dream is that Dinah sees it too and we see it from Dinah's perspective. So we see Dinah Dinah notices the white rabbit before Alice does and Dinah is the one who looks and waves that sweet little wave as she looks down the hole at Alice. I mean, it's so sweet. So we do see it from her perspective. So is it a dream? Or is it just a part of I, I what's, love what's really happening? The, the animation of her falling down the hole. Love it. It's so great. It's so great. And how other art, I mean, so many artists have taken on Alice. And there's a, there's a Czech film of Alice by the great animator Jan Spunkmeyer, which I everyone should go go watch. But the way he renders the fall through into Wonderland is is really kind of astonishingly brilliant but um the way her dress kind of turns into a parachute and mm-hmm. it's a wonderful she doesn't panic and she doesn't no. panic really at, one point, at one point she gets onto a rocking chair and just relaxes um <laughs> you know she's so calm as she falls through all this nonsense which someone might say is a flaw like, oh, we could raise the stakes by increasing her tension here. But it allows us to enjoy the descent and to see all of the stuff that she's going to see, the upside-down mirror with her upside-down reflection. Um, it, it really it really lets us feast our eyes for a moment and, and get calibrated for a lot of nonsense. It's also the Disney version of it. If you look at some other retellings, that, that descent can is really can be quite terrifying. A descent into madness, it, yes. The descent into madness. But I think what the way that descent is is shown, it's a little bit like falling asleep to me in the sense that we one floats and lands and floats and lands and I take I mean it has a lot of real estate animation wise. I'm I, I'm always sort of surprised by that. But um I think it's also telling us it's gonna be a G movie and you know everything's gonna right. be okay. Yeah. No, no, nothing is going to be that scary. That scary, right. Um, so then we talk about rising action and climax. And I always say, Kira, it's much easier sometimes to figure out what the climax is and work your way backwards as to, because everything between the inciting incident and the climax is rising action. So, so Dorothy is going to meet oh so many people, the doorknob, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You mean Alice, rabbit. right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, nice. That's Freudian slip there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, um, the, the Mad Tea Party, the Caterpillar, the Flowers, so many people. Where would we say that this movie reaches its climax? And uh, for people at home, the climax is where things are at their most dramatic. Uh, there's tension. Sometimes in these movies, we say the forces of good and the forces of evil contend. Uh, it doesn't have to be that big, but it's... It's the thing where we would say, this is the big event. This is where things could conceivably go most dire. This is where our protagonist needs to triumph. I would say it's the trial. I think all the characters converge for Alice's sentencing. And so we ask, does she die in Wonderland? Or is she offered a means of escape? Or how, you know, it, 
is the queen going to get her or is she going to triumph over the queen? Also, um, worst witnesses in a trial ever. <laughs> Just <laughs> like if you're on trial for your uh, life, right, do you really want the Mad Hatter and the March Hare? I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I would agree with you, Andy, that, that it is the confrontation between Alice and the Queen of Hearts that is our big ticket item. Um, right. it's, it's It isn't set up from the beginning in terms of that the Queen of Hearts even exists. I think it's not until maybe midway through through Act 2 that the Cheshire Cat even brings up the idea of a Queen of Hearts. But, but of all of the forces that she's met, the Queen of Hearts certainly seems the most formidable. Uh, certainly actively is calling for the execution of people and Alice specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I would agree with you that that's the climax. I, I Yeah, that is the climax. And it's got, it, it's kind of got a multi-pronged climax. I mean, it, it gives, it has a nice kind of, in a way the trial is oddly anticlimactic for me, as opposed to the moment in which the queen discovers Alice and says off with her head. You know, then th- that feels like, oh, Dang, <laughs> you know, obviously the, the trial is the climax, but that moment it, in in its moment feels really terrifying. One thing I wanted, I had forgotten, and I think this is very interesting, is that the white rabbit has a little heart on his bib. Yes. And, mm. and, um, and he, of course, is, he's late. He's late for the queen. And um, so he, he leads her to, I mean, just as, you know, a lot of heroines are led to the witch, you know, he, he has that function. I think that's interesting. He's part of that, very much part of that world. And I want to go back to your earlier point about how, like, we feel the tension the most when the queen's in a rage and goes off for her head, but we may not feel it at the trial specifically. Um, and that's because Alice doesn't really seem to be afraid that she's not treating it like life or death stakes there. I mean, she's like embarrassed when the Mad Hatter and the March right. Hare and the Dormouse come back. She's like, oh, man, how's this going to go? But she doesn't <laughs> seem to be afraid for her life in that sequence. Uh, one thing that I've always felt could strengthen that climax a little bit is when Alice becomes big in that courtroom scene, which for me is a moment where I cheer, where she's big and the queen is small. I want to live in that moment longer. Mm. I want Alice to go to town Godzilla style on the (laughs) queen of hearts area. I I, I, I do. I want to, I want a five minute sequence where Alice is Godzilla and, and nothing can stop her. Uh, and then, of course, there should be a reversal that gets her to have to run out of Wonderland. But but it's such a brief moment of empowerment. Man, does the Queen of Hearts deserve to be on the defense for a longer period of time. I, I really agree with you. And I feel I what my my feeling watching it was, wow, that mushroom didn't last very long. Right, <laughs> right, right. So quickly. <laughs> yeah. Larry, you mentioned reversals. And, you know, every sequence in this film contains a, re- a reversal. Where, you know, something starts one way, but then it ends another. And even the overarching film, you know, Alice's desire for nonsense is completely reversed. She wants out of nonsense. She wants things to start making sense. And so, and and I think The Wizard of Oz is apropos because we see Alice, um, she's searching for a way to get back to the riverbank, just like Dorothy was searching for a way to get back to Kansas. Yeah. Um, but she has to go through this witch first. And I mean, it seems, or this queen first that who are, you know similar characters and then the cheshire cat is almost this glenda who says oh here's here's how you do it well i mean should we start talking about characters andy because yeah 
Yeah. So, so now we're going to leave a few out for the sake of time because there are how many can- we can't talk about all these characters and there there's so many in- fun ones. Yeah. More they're, than they're, depending on how you count on it, this would be a six hour podcast, which <laughs> we can't. We I mean, can't. We so could, but we won't. Right. Well, let's talk about Alice straight up. What do we think about Alice? I love Alice. Um, and a lot of people don't. But the thing about Alice that I think people need to understand is in all of these female protagonist-led movies that we've seen so far prior to this, we've had like our Snow Whites, uh, we're going to have our Sleeping Beauties, we're going to have our Cinderella's, you know, all in this classic, uh, even Wendy from Peter Pan. Sure. There is no more active female protagonist than Alice in any of these movies. And I'm I'm not saying she's not a flawed protagonist, but but Alice does stuff. Alice comes up with plans, Alice comes up with actions. She mm-hmm. she holds grudges, she gets mad. She's not this perfect woman, patient, womanly, humble person. She is an adventurer. She is, she is facing just one problem after another. You know, you know, I'm too big. I'm too small. I cried too much. My flamingo doesn't work. I mean, it, it's really interesting how 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 it really is a kind of daisy chain of of Alice's problems that builds this story. And as opposed to other movies, they don't put the solution of solving all of her problems on other characters. No, she has right. to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite moment in all of Alice in Wonderland is the one you mentioned with the flamingo, <laughs> where she pulls the flamingo out and the flamingo is not cooperative. Yeah. And she has to use the flamingo at croquet because the queen is losing her temper, and that's that's no good. She she tries reasoning with the flamingo, and the, <laughs> she's like, "Do you want both of us to lose our heads?" And the flamingo goes, "Uh huh, I do." Um, but then there's the moment where the flamingo is now trying to swing Alice, and Alice yes. is just brilliant. Yeah, it's does this thing with her finger. She smiles this cunning smile. She she crooks it in. The flamingo comes in close. She grabs it by the neck and whacks the heck out of that hedgehog. And I hear <laughs> every time. Yeah. It is- no, it's it's exactly it's in a nutshell. I think exactly right. It's how her character is built and how what makes her spunky and and how the movie kind of gains its energy. She plays the game. She does play the game. I was thinking about the the flowers, the flower sequence, which I watched a little bit of Fantasia last night. And uh, I mean, they're clear, clear borrows from that film in this one. But Alice, you know, even she even gets ready. She's going to be a flower and she's going to sing the song and she sings the song along with the flowers. And then they discuss, they, you know, tell her she's a, she's a weed. And so they're going to root her out (laughs) and, and even Bud, you know, Bud's the only one that stands up for her, right? I think and she's so, I, I love Bud. I love Bud. So that's a delightful sequence as well, right? Right. And yeah. so there are all there are all these moments where you get this, where she is playing the game, and she wants to be a part of this Wonderland until she doesn't. And yeah. it's also, I think, it's not that this is a movie in which we're watching Alice accumulate a series of morals or lessons, but it is. It 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 is. I think a piece in which we're watching this young girl begin to understand who she is by mm-hmm. 
in relationship to these these characters. So she says, you know, do you suppose she's a wildflower? Who are you? Everyone's always asking her, who are you? You know, do you ever, uh, have you ever seen an Alice? You know, she goes, I'm not a weed. I'm not a weed. I'm not a flower. So, uh, so, right. you know, she's the a character with- that's built, you know, as she goes, she accumulates and we're, it, we're watching her understand who, who she is in a way. Which is a rhyming sequence to the part where she's a monster in she's the monster. White Rabbit yeah. Cat. I'm not, right. monster, I'm right? not, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, the caterpillar, who are you? You know, everyone's always asking, who are you? I hardly know, sir, she says, you know. Yeah. Um, I've changed so many times, you know. So oh. Alice's sister, is it Alice's sister or is it's it Alice's a tutor? Sister. Okay. okay. No, I mean, I, you're like, wow, she's older. She could be a nun. Really. She's credited though as or, Alice's sister. Yeah. So, or, yeah. Yeah, or a tutor or a governess. I mean, she acts more like a, you know, a caregiver than a, and maybe I, that's, maybe that's just how it was. You know, I like find you're the little, you're the little sister dumb. and I'm the big sister and this is how it works. And, and I think it's you also, should do a, this. you know, it's also like a cautionary tale for Alice. It's like, my God, this is what a weird <laughs> thing. <laughs> if I spend too much time in a world without pictures, oh dear, I have to wear that outfit. But I hate Alice's sister more than I hate any other character in this movie. <laughs> and and hate is a strong word. Hate is a strong word. But but I hate her as a teacher because pedagogically this is not how you engage with your students. But but I also I also hate her because she doesn't see Alice. No, she never looks mm. at her. Yeah. No. But, doesn't has no empathy for her doesn't realize that there are ways like if you have this little sister who climbs trees and makes daisy chains for the kitten and you have an afternoon and it's beautiful out and you're out in the grass how dare you how dare you not play with your little sister how dare you start and spend the time lecturing about the archbishop of canterbury which nobody cares about right there is a whole (laughs) argument to be made here that just just like kira says that alice is rebelling against you know the the sense and going for nonsense but i think also there's this idea that alice doesn't have a friend Mm. Right, she's imagining. I, if it's a choice between staying with my sister or this white rabbit who's going to lead me down a rabbit hole, but is not my sister, I, I know I would go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Behind door number one is not great. Door number two might have prizes. Exactly, might be there might be a party. Right, I know. Let's talk about let's talk about the white rabbit. So, um, it is my favorite Jefferson Airplane song. But it's also a story engine. I mean, the White Rabbit is a story engine that gets us from place to place in each of these sequences. And um, later we learn his anxiety comes from being late to the Queen, and probably for good reason. And he calls Alice Marianne? What's yep. up with that? Mary Jane? Mary Marianne. Marianne. That's from the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So- the, the, uh, apparently there is a girl servant who works for the White Rabbit who looks identical to Alice. Uh, and is called Marianne, which again is the identity issue that Alice has. Again, um, right. Again and again is that she could be someone, she could be, she could not be someone. Mm. Uh, so for me, the thing about the White Rabbit that is curious is he's prominent, uh, prominently displayed throughout the movie, and yet 
at the end, we don't know very much about him, and he's arguably not very important. Alice gives up on the goal of finding him. She does eventually find him, but when she finds him, she doesn't care. She doesn't have a moment where she has a conversation with him, uh, where she learns about his motivations. Um, And uh, I'm sorry to keep bringing up Wizard of Oz, but Alice (laughs) does not help anyone. And Dorothy is constantly offering to help. Mm-hmm. And I part of me wonders if the White Rabbit should in some way be an ally of Alice's, right? Mm. Or, or in some way, like the, if Alice was trying to help the White Rabbit instead of just pursue the White Rabbit, like just recognize that there's a trauma there, that there's a problem, that this White Rabbit is not leading his best life. Uh, it would make her a little bit more heroic, but it would also give her an objective to pursue beyond just getting out of Wonderland. But she is trying to find his gloves. She does go upstairs to try to find his gloves. If I were a white rabbit, where would I, I you know? So she is sort of helpful, but it's not that's very. Not, that's, that's not big enough. Big enough no. is getting the white rabbit asylum, overthrowing the queen, you know, or, right, or right, getting right, him right. treated better. Right. Or, or, or teaching him courage. Right, um, or how to have a heart. I, there you uh, go. <laughs> I, I find the White Rabbit's watch really interesting. And mm-hmm. um, I'd forgotten the scene at the Mad... Um, oh, I love that. Where, where in which it is slathered with... What, they're, they're, I think they're going to put mustard on it, but that's too much. But lemon... That's lemon not silly. <laughs> no, right. right. You know, and that, that strikes me as an interesting moment, too, when the rabbit loses the function of time. Do you think that echoes through the rest of the movie? Does it, does it have an effect? It's such an, it's such a a kind of metaphoric moment where, you know, you're late, you're late, you're obsessed with time. Suddenly time is destroyed. Does it? Well, I will throw out to you, Kira, um, that the thing that's famous about the mad tea party is the reason the tea party doesn't end in the book is the Mad Hatter has had a falling out with time. Exactly. And, because, and time mm-hmm. won't pass anymore, so they're stuck at tea forever until the Mad Hatter and time can sort it out. So I do I do think there is something that I don't know how to unpack it. But I, I think well, there's, there's an unbursting party. More, I see it much more metaphorically in the original and it's it's just a great bit. I guess I'll just say that. The thing with the clock the, the Oh I love it. It's so funny. Great bit. Yeah. Well, the unbirthday party is this unending tea party, too, because yeah. the 364 days of the year you can celebrate your unbirthday thing. So time really isn't that important. I, um, I, I do want to say one more thing about the White Rabbit, if I may. Sure. Unlike every other character in Wonderland, the White Rabbit also loses in his exchanges. Uh, mm. He's the only one who really loses in his exchanges. Uh, we have a sequence where the Mad Hatter and the March Hare... Uh, destroy the the white rabbit's watch and he's not okay with it yeah you know Mm -hmm. and and everyone else is just happy to be in this mad little place and there is something about the white rabbit that separates him he's the other victim he's the perpetual victim Mm -hmm. of wonderland and and it's interesting to me i mean i again this is perhaps uh thinking too deeply about it but seeing the movie again, I was aware of how male he was. Um, and, you know, he, he's echoed by this little king, you know, who's, who's mm-hmm. also sort of wildly in, ineffectual. And I, 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 in gender terms, I found that 
that interesting how 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 male he is in, in a in a world where you know yeah. we're not necessarily thinking too much about gender he may be the masculine ideal of this movie because uh, I don't know that anybody else steps up for that role. Exactly. So the Mad Hatter and the March Hare, we talked about them a little bit. Um, they have a crazy setup, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, they we, we see them at this unbirthday party, which is something that we, um, at our house, a sidebar, we totally celebrate around here sometimes. If, do you need an unbirthday party? <laughs> um, <laughs> so sometimes that happens. But they're very unreliable. They never really give Alice the tea that she wants. And they're not very great. I mean, they're not great witnesses at the trial, except they then distract the queen with her own birth unbirthday party, which she is delighted by. So, I mean, they, they do help out a little. It, right? It's interesting because they give with one hand and take away with the other, both yes. literally and figuratively. The Mad yes. Hatter says... At, at several points during the conversation, looks sympathetic to Alice and says something along the lines, now, my dear, you said you were looking for a white rabbit and like he's going to listen. And then immediately the conversation <laughs> gets changed. I, I think it's also, a, 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 you know, part of Alice, not, again, not that Alice has lessons per se, but but there is there are lessons in this tea party, which are sort of backwards and they have to do with sort of what are manners and i think that i think that the the film asks that question in, in a lot of different ways what's the proper thing to do and i th- i thought there was an interesting lesson in in the scene in which alice understands oh you have to compliment them and then mm. and then they'll behave in, in a nice way and i think that's a that's an interesting lesson for a little girl and we see her longing for convention in that exactly that's where we really start to see, I think, that moment where she's like, but this is how you do it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it, it, it's very funny. I love this scene. I just love the animation of I just would like a half a cup of tea and they pop the, <laughs> the cup in half and pour, you know, it's a beautiful little moment. Super fun. They're um, differentiate for me in the in in the movie, The Mad Hatter, and, and you know. Uh, and and the March Hare. The, I know. I mean, I know one is a rabbit and one is a is more of a human. But they 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 feel sort of a little like Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Mm-hmm. Or they're the same. Yeah. There's a great reversal where um, suddenly they're afraid of Alice for being insane. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they start shaking, and uh, that's one of my favorite bits. Yeah. I love it. So the caterpillar. Let's talk about him. He seems obsessed. Like. My my daughter said last night, he seems obsessed with opium and mushrooms and vowels. <laughs> I'm like, that's fair. I think that's very fair. Also, he tells Alice to keep her temper, but then, then a reversal, he doesn't keep his temper, right? That he can't and he's take also in the process of transforming again. You know, he's sure. changing um, his his form. Um, I always thought, I always loved the word hookah. And that's a, indeed a hookah. That uh. smokes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't have much to say about him. Uh, he he. There's a weird sequence in which she leaves, and then he calls her back, mm-hmm. and then we watch her come back for a while. Um, and I'm I'm just not. I don't know why he wants to help her. I don't know what he's trying to learn. Um, he loses his temper, but losing his temper is what transforms him into arguably a thing of beauty. 
Right. Right. Um, it's and, and again in the scene, there's this this. I mean, I think the scene for me is about this exchange when where we're talking about what you are and what you're not. I'm not a serpent, you know. And he says, mm. and again, he says, "Who are you?" And she says, "I'm just a little girl. I am." Um, I mean, I wonder if I'll ever get the knack of it, right? So yeah. it's it's a. I think of uh, in the in the original, it's a very important scene in, in terms of Alice's uh, character development. But um, does he give her the mushroom? Yes, yes, he gives her the mushroom. So yeah, and I, he I keeps mean, asking her, "Who are you? Who, who are, are you?" you? Again. And she never she never really has a great answer for. Well, it. she does. Even at the end. She says, "I'm a I'm just a little girl, a little and girl, right?" Knack of it. You know, but I think he's asking for something deeper. Like, who right. are you really? Are I mean, you? yes, you're a kid, but like, who are you as a human? You know, and what what are you all about? And I don't think she has a good answer for that in this moment. No, when we meet, when they meet, it's um, the first time she says, "I'm a little girl." Though, I mean, you know, in terms of right. she said things like, "Well, I'm not a weed." I mean, she knows what she's not. <laughs> right, um, right, right. So the Cheshire Cat. He's enigmatic. He's not all there. So he disappears and reappears wherever he wants. He is the closest we get to an ally to Alice, but he's Mm -hmm. a terrible ally. Um, (laughs) He's an agent of chaos. That's how I see him. He, He... he wants things to be as for there to be as much conflict as possible for things to be as problematic as possible when things stall out and there's no energy left in the sequence that's when he comes into revitalizing it but i don't see him as some people see him as benevolent i and that yeah. may be that may be yeah. because his voice um reminds them of a certain other disney character uh <laughs> but uh, sterling holloway yes um. But but I see him of all of the characters, he is the devil. Uh, he feels like the devil to me. He he always scared me. I I mean, when I saw yeah. him as a girl, he he was the character that frightened me actually more than the queen. Interestingly, because he's so calm and he's so, so calm, cool. He's very unreliable. <laughs> I don't. Well, know. He embra- he embraces the crazy, and he almost and he revels in it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like it's like he's the one. And even though the Queen of Hearts may be in charge, I mean, he even tells Alice, the Cheshire Cat says, well, all of Wonderland's under her authority, right? Um, Who's the one that keeps, you know, pushing the buttons? It's the Cheshire Cat. He's the crazy one who knows he's crazy, but he also revels in making other people more crazy. (laughs) I mean, mean, if you Uh. told me, like, that the Queen isn't really in charge, Andy, like you're suggesting, and that it is actually the Cheshire Cat, and he allows the Queen to think she's in mm-hmm. charge, I think there's mm-hmm. something there. I think there is I, something there. I'm trying. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it that scene with the Cheshire Cat that makes Alice decide that she's had enough nonsense and she's ready to go home? It's, I think, the scene right before that. She cries. Right, yeah. she, I give myself very good advice, but I sell so, very seldom follow. Right. She decides to just stay put in this one area, right. and then the checker cat comes in and gives comes her a short butt to the. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a weird savior. <laughs> if that, if that, it may just, Maybe he just want to make up, her mad. You know? I yeah. drive her crazy. His his end right. game may be to. He's to a manifestation get her- of madness, I think. The there we go. Visible and half visible and that smile and yeah. 
and and he redefines reality whenever he's around. Yep. Right. For sure. All right, the Queen of Hearts. What is it that, you know, she's Alice calls her a fat, pompous, bad tempered old tyrant. That's pretty she's good. Not wrong. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's not. Calling it like she sees it. Yeah. It I is, feel like I know the Queen of Hearts. I don't know. I feel like sometimes you're in a meeting and you're like, wow, there she is. Or I, there he I is. definitely I've definitely met the Queen of Hearts. I think if you work any kind of customer service job, um, I think you've met the Queen of Hearts where people are just irrationally angry um, over Always things that are really... the Queen's ways, you know, right. the, when, you're, when you're told it doesn't, you, it doesn't matter whether you did it right, you didn't do it my way, so it's... Right, really... always are my ways, right? Um, the thing about the, the Queen of, of Hearts for me, and, and Kira... Uh, this is this is partly influenced by conversations with you. Um, a few years from now, uh, from the making of Alice in Wonderland, we're going to have the movie Peter Pan, where they character double uh, the kid's father with Captain Hook. And I can't help but wonder what it, this movie would look like if the Queen of Hearts physically resembled Alice's sister. Sister, yeah. Mm. I, I I've had this. I've had the same thought. Um, it seems, um, you know, in a in an interesting way, the movie posits different versions of femininity, you know, and I it, it it's interesting. So Alice, who's trying to figure out who she is, is met with her sister, who is one version, right? Mm-hmm. And boy, I don't want to wear a hat like that, you know. No. And then, <laughs> And then the flowers are sort of a different, you know what I'm saying? And then I think the Queen of Hearts is a, is a kind of ultimate um, representation in a way. Um, if they doubled, I mean, it would be like, you know, the, the double in, in also in Wizard of Oz, in which the witch, you know, lives in two different um, worlds, uh, in two different forms. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. Although... I think that question might be fueled a lot by your hatred of Alice's sister because. <laughs> well, I mean, they both, they both have no room for Alice to have agency. That's yes, the thing that connects true. those two characters. And they both, although the queen, um, the queen has a lot of rules, you know, and I think um, the rules you know, and I think, uh, yeah, and I think Alice's sister represents certain rules as well. Yeah, it's a, that's a, a very interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Uh, different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, what about it would the- make it more personal in a way in which I don't think yeah. it's personal now. Um, that being well, said- I kind of think that the Queen of Hearts might represent Alice's worst, worst impulses. You know, I keep because I keep thinking of all of these characters of, of uh, you know, if it's a dream and, and there are certain things that we learn about ourselves as we dream. I wonder if the queen Alice could be is sort of Alice and the queen of hearts. That's right. That's right. And um, there's a I'm, part of her that doesn't want to be under anybody's authority. And this is what happens when you are completely in charge and get everything you want. Yeah, right. that's interesting. I think it's also a calibration of nonsense. So we've seen right. we've seen different different shades of nonsense and with the Queen of Hearts we're getting what happens when nonsense is um uh melded with power. 
and you know how frightening that that can really be. Um, It's a sort of a political depiction in a way, you know. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. But then we have the King of Hearts, who I think is the savior of this movie. Yes, I know. Um, He's he's the only one to get the queen to reconsider her impulsiveness. He's the only one. Well, but but I don't see him as any less sinister for it. I just like so there's a version of this where where we could say the King of Hearts is actively trying to save Alice, however he can save her. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't see that. I see that. Oh, I don't think he's trying to save Alice. I don't think that's the motive. I think he's trying to tamp down the queen before she just destroys everything in her wake. Right. What's very interesting in the book, uh, as opposed to in the movie, in the book. Every time the Queen of Hearts is off with their heads and they and they pull them away, the as soon as the Queen is out of earshot, the King goes, uh, "I I pardon them, I pardon them." And the idea is actually no one is ever losing their head in Wonderland. It's just her fancy, <laughs> uh, and like they, it's it's all a big for show. Here, he is enabling a monster. Mm. I I have no doubt that the the three cards that uh, were painting the roses red are going off to an execution. Uh, the queen is so malevolently brutish towards Alice. Her face turns red. Her teeth are mm. bared. She is a monster of a creature. And she it's all directed at this one little girl who we also know is innocent, uh, could not have handled the queen better than she does. She no, she great. curtsies when she's told to curtsy. She's respectful. It's it is not it's there is this narcissistic monster on the throne. Who, oh, when she gets to the yeah. Her, and, and forgive me because I seem to always be going to this place who <laughs> is not interested in being a good governing body to to her people and instead would much prefer to spend all of her time on the croquet course where <laughs> Eats at croquet. I, uh, I, I, could you imagine? Um, I can't imagine yeah, such a I, thing. A imagine thing. that. Yes, I, no I, I love how small the king is. I, 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 mm. I find it a gag that it just makes me giggle. And the king, you know, who is that one fan of the king who goes hooray? I, I I've always wondered, like, because everybody cheers for the queen. I know, right. Like, and then the white rabbit goes, and the king, and you hear one guy go, yippee! Who is the lizard? I don't know. Super fan. Kill the lizard. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, let's get to the movie within the movie. <laughs> okay, so, so all right. So we got to talk about Tweedledee and Tweedledum. We and I, do. I don't want to, but I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story. When I was a okay. kid, I would get very excited when Alice in Wonderland was on TV. It would be on WPIX 11, which was the local uh, local station at that time. Right on. Um, and when I would watch it, there would be commercial breaks. And one of the things that I realized was they would cut out the sequence of Tweedledee and Tweedledum. <laughs> Huh, I and I was mad because I wasn't seeing the whole movie. And I would uh, like to offer my apologies to WPIX11. <laughs> you were right to cut it. I was wrong to want it. Uh, you're in that. That was amazing <laughs> editing instincts, and I didn't appreciate it as a child. I apologize. 
I think it's the only time where, in the film anyway, where I completely lose the thread. Somehow they manage to keep that thread going, thanks to the, you know, Alice and the White Rabbit and, you know, the songs and everything. And it, when when we get to that scene, especially when, when they introduce the idea of the oysters and suddenly we're, we're in a, fi- a fish shack, and, you know, I, I'm like, why are, how do, oh, yes, this isn't supposed to be about the story of the oysters. But, um, you know, it, it, it's not a straight line, that's for sure. It is, we, we walk away from our protagonist in the Her middle of the movie. Yeah. And, and in a movie which already is going to have the reveal that it's been a dream all along, which we <laughs> kind of know anyway, we have this dream within a dream. And it's not really clear. We're not going into Alice's subconscious and learning something about Alice in this dream within a dream. There's no indication that any of the information we're getting about the walrus and the carpenter is going to be useful to us later. Uh, no. It's it's just so it's Tara. It's like exposition of something that Tweedledee and Tweedledum say that has no real relevance. I have to think it's about a sequence that was really beautifully animated and that, you know, there was something political in the editing room that people were like, no, sorry, it, that stays, you know, it that's stays, right. beautiful. I mean, there, if you want to get really meta, there's a, there's a theme in The Wallace and the Carpenter, which is, you know, be careful of who you partner with, right? Mm-hmm. I and think it's so, about curiosity, Right. Yeah, you, Alice you can be curious too- about the white rabbit, and much like the oysters, she's walked into um, the, the the Alice eatery. Right? How are like, the oysters curious? I can't. I don't get that. I mean, they're well, just like born. The and- walrus comes in and says, "The time has come to talk of many things: of shoes and right. chips and sealing wax, cabbages and kings." Uh, and uh, they all take his hand because they want to hear what he has to say. Mother oyster says, "No, no, stay in your oyster bed. It's not safe to go up there." But right. they're curious about what he has to. They even say, "The walrus and the carpenter," or the story of the curious oysters. Right. They seem they seem um, uh, pathetically curious to me. I don't yes. know. <laughs> just like. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then the walrus cheats the carpenter out of so the is oy- the moral eating oysters, not, right? If you're curious, you're going to be eaten. Yes. Yeah. I think it yeah. is. I think Tweedledee and Tweedledum figure out Alice. There's a moment where they get diabolical looks, and and one of them says, "Who knows which one?" One of them says, <laughs> "You know, oh, just like the oysters, she's after the white rabbit because she's curious." And then they tempt her. By, by 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 her curiosity. And she says, what is this about the oysters? And you can see the smile on their face because they know they've lured her in. They're the right. walrus and the carpenter. They've lured her in, and now they're going to torture her with poetry. Uh, and they're <laughs> never going to let her leave. A lot of rhyming, yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of rhyming. But the walrus also gets the meat sweats in this, which I, I think is right. I actually thought it was it was cautionary because they were eating them in a in the wrong month? I don't know. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, smart. Yeah. Uh, but think, Mother yeah. Oyster does say this is not the time to, to not open the time up. to eat us. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Mm. I, I, All right, Larry. We're okay. going to talk about characters that didn't make the cut. 
I want to do this very briefly, but I find this fascinating. With all of the characters, in not just in Alice in Wonderland, but also Alice Through the Looking Glass, there was a big conversation in the writer's room, which characters do we want to include and which don't we want to include? Uh, one of the characters they wanted to include, they discussed including was Humpty Dumpty, uh, who is visually interesting uh, as a character, but also they decided against him because the thing about Humpty Dumpty is that sequence is all about wordplay and what words mean. And while that might work on the page, they felt that wouldn't work in such a visual movie. Uh, another character that they considered uh, bringing in was the Jabberwock. That was a late cut to not have the Jabberwock in there. And the reason I know this is I had the little golden book of Alice's Disney's Alice in Wonderland, and there's a page that depicts Alice meeting the Jabberwock, and he's got like three arms and and what have you. And they mention and she has an interaction That's with the Jabberwock. Right? Okay, you're okay. You're totally engaging my old, like my childhood memories. But you're exactly right. There was a Jabberwock in that book, and I I am very much uh, fascinated by that. Uh, I'm I'm wonder what that would have been like. I will post something about this on our Facebook page, Andy, about okay. the Jabberwock. Yeah, good idea. Uh, they, they had songs about the Jabberwock, too. I'll, I'll post those also. That's Sweet. on our Facebook fan page, uh, if anybody's mm -hmm. interested. That will be there eventually. Yeah. Um, the other character that they considered bringing in was the White Knight. Um, and that was because Walt felt, he like argued a lot that the White Knight should be in the movie, that Alice needs an ally, that she needs someone who's on her side consistently, who is sympathetic, who Alice could help. And he was talked out of having the White Knight be in the movie, but one of his regrets was, I shouldn't have let them talk me out of it. She needed that, and he wasn't there. Oh, wow. So, yeah, like, she needed a, a savior or something? Or somebody or someone to help to her save. through? Or someone, or someone to, to save. save. Someone sympathetic, someone on her side, so that she's not quite so alone in Wonderland, that, that there could mm. be this person who recurs throughout the movie who we're also rooting for. Yeah, that would have been a good idea. What about the um, the doorknob is, is made up, right? Yes, the doorknob is completely the original. not in any of them. No, no, no. That is the only original character in the movie. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Interesting. All righty. Well, so you mentioned music, Larry. Yeah. Um, so I, the little sidebar, this most songs ever written for a Disney feature, including 30 unused songs. So this was like a song factory. Um, and I kind of divided them into narrative songs where it's sort of driving the story or exposition character-driven songs. Um, and there are lots there are lots of ways to get into, and this is a musical, right? I mean, there are ways to get into Alice's head. Um, and, you know, we hear in a, when she sings in a world of my own, when she sings very good advice, even when she's um, singing the golden afternoon or painting the roses red, we get a, a little glimpse into her psyche and what's happening. So, and then, of course, in the exposition, we have these character-driven songs. We Sailor's Hornpipe, there's the dodo, I'm late, we hear, we see the rabbit. Um, How do you do in Shake Hands is, and my dog is barking because there's, well, this is fun. Oh, we have a thunderstorm going on here. So, um, but How Do You Do in Shake Hands is a, um, uh, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedled, 
Tweet, I always say Tweedledum and Tweedledumer because that's what we call Tweedledee them. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. There you go. Um, and The Walrus and the Carpenter, AEIOU, Twas Brillig, right? Um, and the Unbirthday song. So those are sort of here we're going to introduce these characters and we introduce them with a song. But man, is it song heavy. Yeah. Um, I, I would argue the most important songs, a song of all of this, is not ne- necessarily the best or the funnest song. But the most important song is Very Good Advice. It is the one in which Alice identifies her character flaw mm-hmm. uh, and, and wrestles with it. I give myself right. very good advice, but I sel- very seldom follow it. We've seen this throughout the movie. Even when she's going through the rabbit hole, she's saying to Dinah, now, we really shouldn't be going into this rabbit hole because I don't know that it's particularly safe. But she keeps going. Um, she she talks about not drinking the poison because it might be the, the 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 bottle that will drink me because it might be poison. But then she drinks it anyway. Um, like of all of the songs, I feel like that's the most important one. And yet, and yet, having recognized that flaw in that song, it doesn't provide a turning point for Alice because she doesn't start following her own advice. Right. No. But she does. She does kind of un- begin to clarify that the nonsense is too, you know, that she doesn't. It's she doesn't too much, right? Nonsense. I would say I agree with you. I think in a world of my own is it functions in a really interesting way dramatically because it summons everything. It it is such an interest. Its song is portal. In other words, all she it's it's the I want song that builds the whole world. Yes. And um I I I really marveled at, at how efficiently it did that. Okay, let's get into protagonist problems. Oh, just one last thing oh, about Go song. ahead. I always wonder about this one moment in Golden Afternoon where Alice fails to hit the high note. Yes, right. <laughs> what what happened there? It, it, you know, in a world in which we're doing a movie and we have unlimited takes of voice acting, like it was that a pl- I, I always wonder, was that a planned thing or was that just Catherine Beaumont could not hit that high note and they didn't want to take the solo away from her and they I, just animated around it? I, I think they 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 it possibly was a mistake that they made the best of because it's a it's actually quite funny and it's yeah. acknowledged in the scene. Yeah. And she's not really a flower, right? Yeah. And gives it gives the flowers an idea that she's a weed. Yeah. So it kind of plays into that too. Mm-hmm. I can, I I can't I can sing, but I I you know with the choir, but I'm not quite one of you. Again, it's part of this identity thing. Yeah. Sorry. And now we can move on to protagonist problems. Protagonist problems. So Alice, I think, is the clear protagonist of this movie, and she's making choices. But we've got that whole Walrus and the Carpenter segment. It's a little too episodic. And it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Alice, right? Or at least she's not engaging any of the characters in there. And it's almost like a didactic little lesson. Um, so what do we think, Larry? For activity. <laughs> she gets points for being an active protagonist. Um, she, she does more than I think any Disney character has ever done before. Where she loses points is clear objectives, clear things that she wants to get out of her interactions, pursuit of her goal. Uh, If you were to tell me why does she really, if you were to ask me why does she really want to meet with the White Rabbit, 
and I I don't I don't really know. I don't know that Alice really knows. Right. Um, you know, she's like it it's just and but that's also true of the book. It's also like the source material, Alice's objectives are not very clear throughout throughout the book either. Um so so the problem here is if how do you do Alice and have the audience stay with Alice? Uh, when we don't even know what Alice really wants, when we don't know what the stakes are for Alice at any given point. And there are moments where we do know what the stakes are late in the game with the Queen of Hearts. But but I would say the, pro- the problem is, you know, to make sense of the nonsense of this movie, we need to understand Alice even if we don't understand the rest of Wonderland. I think it might help if we get in the front end of this and have a little more exposition uh, to tell us what Alice really wants. And it's not so, you know, it's not quite as nebulous, but why does she really need this wonderland? Um, Not just because her sister's boring her, but something, something, maybe even a bigger problem. I think that would be helpful. For me, it's a little like middle school, you know, being in middle school where you're not really quite sure what you want, but boy, you keep having little problems and you keep, or suddenly you're way too big or you feel really, really small, you know, or you say the wrong thing or you don't know how to, and then, and then there's Mm. your teacher who's such a bully and your sister who has grown up to be so boring. So it, it, the, 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 for me, the, the sort of, uh, the, the idea of the problem, I guess, for the protagonist is it is kind of baked into, um, I guess, what the theme is or or or, or what it seems to ex- explore. But Alice, as a protagonist, exists moment to moment, you know, and um, problem after problem. Not unlike what middle school is like, you know. We remember that. So, oh yeah, too so well. <laughs> easy fix for this might be to borrow from from the Disney, not from the Disney, from the Wizard of Oz, which is if Alice is running away from home at the start of the movie, as opposed to just following the right White Rabbit, um, does that get that does that give her a little bit more? Uh, if she's looking to settle in Wonderland, as opposed to just you know find this White Rabbit, does it give give her a little bit more of a through line? The truth of the matter is, there are so many movies that try to solve the Alice problem, um, and including the later Disney remakes, which I don't know that we'll ever cover here, but no one can ever solve it, because to solve it is is to rob rob this world of its nonsense. Well, like, that's exactly me- right, yeah. For me, it's it's the science fiction question. It's sort of, and you see it with, with a lot of journey-type stories, like Gulliver's Travels is the same way. When you put a character in a vibrant wonderland strange world or journey there are background foreground issues if that makes any sense so it's hard to have both the background and the foreground in the same uh le- level of intensity so so alice gulliver's travels many other films certainly anything sci-fi um sort of flattens the protagonist, flattens the guide to the world because it ends up somehow the background becomes more interesting than the character who is taking us there. It's it, and that's exactly right. It's a it's a problem that may be impossible to fix. You know, having a protagonist that is as vivid. I mean the closest really is Dorothy, right? That you know right. that you know that that's um 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the closest it gets to solving that problem, but certainly Gulliver's Travels has the same issue. You know, a lot of things do. Um, I have a question. Is Alice a Disney princess? Um, yes. Akira, after you. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, all you have to do is think about how many little girls dress like her for Halloween. And, you know, there you have the answer. But I think she's a really interesting pr- princess because she's so kind of scrappy and um, defiant and uh, um, makes so many mistakes, right? Now, if we want to argue, like, is she literally royalty? Like, if that's the qualification for being a Disney princess, the answer is no. But I don't think that that's the qualification. Um, For me, what makes Alice the Disney princess is um, that... She she actively struggles and triumphs and and fights against her oppressors with no help from anybody else. She's more of a princess to me than Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or Snow White are. Totally. I mean, her to Snow White. I mean, it's come on. It's like night and day. Um, No. Ariel might be her equal. Um, maybe maybe Jasmine is is Jasmine, the equal of Alice, sure. yeah. but but that but the ones that we think of as the most princessy princesses who have no identity other than being a princess, mm-hmm. Alice is their superior and therefore must be a princess. I I agree. Let's let's crown her. Let's crown her with many crowns. Sounds good. All right, pitch time. Now we know this movie's been remade into a live action movie in 2010 and then of course the sequel in what 2018 um and has been adapted by other people other other people yes lots of lots of people have done lots of stuff with this so what do we do with this story is there a prequel is there a sequel is there a remake is there a series what do we think oh this is a tough one kira do you want to go well i was thinking about that i think it's a great question i think that i think we see this story again and again I mean, I, I think Russian Doll is is has has in it oh. you know, the seeds of Alice in Wonderland. I think the I think the tendency might be to do a a look back in the Queen of Hearts life to see what what has made her so grumpy. I, you know that that would <laughs> that might be where we would go. Um, there, I think that it, it's it's the kind of story that anybody visual wants to work with because that's why Tim Burton does it, right? Because it right. has so much uh, visual potential. It's also the kind of story that takes on um, the nonsense of the time. So you know, we've been through a particularly um, crazy time. So maybe maybe it, it is a time to look at it through the lens of of of, of the the nuttiness technology, uh, you know, gives us the nuttiness of Twitter, the nuttiness of, you know, social media, the nutty- nuttiness of <laughs> presidencies, et cetera. So, yeah. I like it. What you uh, got, Larry? All right. So I'll throw out here. Um, this is a hard one to do a sequel to because it is all a dream. But if I was going to do a sequel to it, it's Alice a few years later. She's living in the real world. 
And then she starts to see elements of Wonderland seeping into her world. And she wonders if she's going a little crazy or what have you. But actually, Wonderland is taking over our world. Those elements of nonsense are happening. We play with the unreliable narrator. Maybe Alice mm. is working at a job. And as, as she's working at that job, her boss becomes more and more like the Queen of Hearts. These things from her childhood are actually in some way real. And she's the only one who 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 sees the world going mad around her. I'll go with I'll go with sort of like a action adventure in the real world becoming Wonderland sort of sequence. I love it. You know, um, uh, there is a mental syndrome called Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Yes, yes, where you don't really where you, you can't is you don't notice yourself in t- in space or like how right. how big you are, or how small you are. Yeah, yeah, or proximity to things. That's interesting. What context mm-hmm. would you send? What 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 year would you set it in, Larry? Is she, you know, is it set in the eighteen hundreds? Is it set in the? No, I think I would make it modern. I think modern. I think you know when you have a period piece and then you dress that period piece with another with another set piece, mm-hmm. it becomes too messy. So I think it needs to be our normal world where you know in in twenty twenty one. But but those out those Wonderland elements are coming in. Hey, it could even be Alice's great 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 granddaughter. I mean, not that. Oh, anymore. interesting. Um, and who's That's heard the crazy. story passed down and and starts to see it. Love it. And I have this. So I had this idea of I took a look at some of the um, Alice comedies before we got this going, and I took a look at a, there was a one in particular called Alice and the Three Bears that I really thought was really fun. And I think it'd be really interesting to take a fresh look at those silent pictures and modernize them as sort of an animated live action hybrid series for preschoolers, where we have Alice discovering things that are, you know, kind of wacky or maybe going into different fairy tales or stories where she's interacting and, and learning new things along the way about herself and what she wants to be and what she doesn't want to be without being you know too didactic, but still, learning some life lessons, I think would be kind of fun. There you go. Fair <laughs> enough. And there's no episode where it's a history le- lesson about... Uh, yes, the, the they are. Yeah. I mean, and who teaches seven-year-olds about the Archbishop of Canterbury? Anyway? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's such, such relevant information to a seven-year-old's life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kira, this has been absolutely a delight having you. Thank uh, you for joining I, us. I could talk for a longer even. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm so glad you we were we were able to make this work. Yeah, I am. Yeah, it's fun. Larry, next week we're going to cover Freaky Friday, the original oh. Freaky Friday. Um, <laughs> not not the, not the remakes. Uh, no, this is no, this the is original, the very the Mary Rogers one. one? Uh, the one from 1976. Mary Rogers did that. I kind of I knew her years ago. All right, fans, you can find us at our Facebook page, Once Upon a Disney Podcast, and on Twitter at at Andy Redwine and at Larry Brenner 6. And should you have a pressing question for us or even Kira to answer, you can always drop an email into our mailbag at onceuponadisneypodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon. <laughs>